All right, everybody. It is Friday of All we In Summit it. Week. We made it. Now you we might. We were on a boat yesterday. We were on a boat yesterday. We were on a boat. No big. But no we're biggie. here for you today in the feed. And that's yes. what really matters. You recently uh, may have seen the news that Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak has co-founded a new space company, space-related company, and we got the CEO on to talk to us. That's right. Alex Fielding joins us today to talk about cleaning up all the junk in space. Obviously, getting to space, uh, thanks to Elon and SpaceX and a number of other players, but mainly Elon, they've got them really cheap. It turns out when you reuse the rockets, you can get a lot more stuff up there and bigger payloads. And uh, now there's a lot of stuff out there. There'll be more stuff out there. That means things can collide and colliding at 18,000 miles per hour it's not a fun experience, it turns out. And the Russians happen to be blowing stuff up in space because they can. Uh, so it's getting a little bit sloppy, I it's think, a up there. Scary out there. A little scary. Yeah, it's time to do a little cleanup work. So Alex explains that. Yeah, he's a total pro. At, you're really going to love this interview. There's just a lot of like geeky space talk. The Nodies loved it when we recorded mm -hmm. it. It's just super fascinating about what that low Earth orbit ecosystem is starting to look like. Yeah, it's going to be a lot yeah. of great stuff out there. Uh, everybody's going to have internet around the planet, and they're going to have it at a really uh, affordable cost, thanks to Amazon's constellation, uh, SpaceX's uh, Starlink constellation. I think there's a third one coming out. Uh, and we also talk blow each other up. <laughs> well, we and we actually exactly. talk about weapons in space and the history of that. I thought that, that was too. an interesting uh, diversion, if you remember, in the conversation that it's we got into. So this Friday is going to be uh, a, a, a great interview for you. But first, we're going to answer a quick Ask Jason and Molly. We have to add the Ad Molly to it uh, about downturns. Going to be a great stick episode. Yeah, stick with us. This week in startups is brought to you by BetterHelp. Providing access to easy, affordable, and private professional counseling anytime, anywhere. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash twist. Open phone. As a startup founder, a lot of mistakes are easy to roll back, but using your personal cell phone number as your company number isn't one of them. Open phone makes it easy to get business phone numbers for you and your team right on top of your existing devices. Visit openphone.co slash twist to get 20% off your first six months. And ad quick. If most of your advertising dollars are going to digital ads, it's time to diversify. Out of home advertising, like billboards, offers low cost, high value reach. Ad quick makes it easy to plan, buy, and measure all in one place. Visit adquick.com slash twist and mention Twist to get $1,000 off your first campaign. All right, everybody, it's time for an Ask Jason. Sorry, Ask JMO. We have ask to rebrand this because uh, <laughs> Molly's here to help out as well. Um, and, and here is the question. What do you remember about the tech industry during the dot-com crash and the Great Recession? Two different moments in time. Any specific things that stand out to you? What a great question. Yeah, So I was uh, in the dot-com era. I was 30 years old. I had my magazine. Uh, and in 2008, I was 38. I was born in 1970. It's really easy to do the math. Um, and so the first one was particularly brutal on me because I had a magazine, Silicon Alley Reporter, yeah. with uh, about 100 employees. And I had to go down to six. And uh, that was hard to lay off 80 people who you loved working with. And we were doing over, I think we did $11.6 million in revenue in 2000. And then we went down to 600000 in revenue in 2001. 
it was perhaps one of the most brutal, brutal years of my life. Uh, and I got through it and kind of made me the entrepreneur I am today. Molly, where were you in 1999 to 2001? I was at CNET. Mm. And it was CNET was not like the most high flying um, dot com. So it's not like we lost all our foosball tables or anything like that. But there's one memory that sort of sticks with me always. And that memory is of all of us, like, in our kind of pod working, realizing there had been some big market move, right? There was like a big crash and everybody was like, huh, I wonder what's going on here. And then all of a sudden a hawk hit the window oh. at CNET. <laughs> like, okay. Slammed. in downtown San Francisco. Yeah. It was down by Fisherman's Wharf. Not too Wharf. many hawks. Yeah. Not a lot of hawks. No. Crashed into the window, like almost like an earthquake. Like it was wow. the most intense. And then it was so upsetting. And then this hawk is like laying on the ground outside. And everybody Dead went hawk. over mm. to the window. And it was just this like really weird. I know that there should be a larger lesson here, but sometimes life is just a metaphor. And that yes. happened. And all of us stood there and we were like, Eek. whoa. This Whoa. feels like kind of a bad sign. And then like two days later, September 11th happened. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, people forget it that one, two punch. all at once. Yeah. yeah. We were, we were already on the ropes and then nine 11 happened and you kind of got the sense that the world was a very dark place that mm -hmm. you were unsafe. Um, and that the uh, age of innocence, the innocence was over for our generation. We had just lived this life where the internet happened when we were in our twenties everything was going up and to the right and young people were coveted believed in they were looked to for the future and then kind of everybody thought dot com's a scam much like people look yeah. at crypto as a scam today and then 9-11 happened and you thought well this is the first time um we are going into a war um when I mean, we had this obscure concept of war with drones in the middle east during the gulf war um but it, again with a volunteer army uh right. it, it didn't really impact everybody and it wasn't on our shores it was in the you know in, in people's minds like there's a desert very far away from here and we have some interest in the oil and some number of thousands of us are going there and lots of them are dying but we're not you know the, the ones on the short end of the stick we have this crazy dominance so it was very weird like the the gulf war was this cnn you know uh almost like a movie you know if it was in a, 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 a mirage that you were watching like is this real or not like with the bombs going off in baghdad um, whereas 9-11, you knew people who died, you saw people jumping out of the, the buildings, you saw the buildings collapse. It was incredibly traumatizing having uh, lived through it. I had PT, I literally had PTSD yeah. from it. Uh, I can't even imagine having been in New York and then our version yeah. of it, which is kind yeah. of absurd to think about now, and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but because those two things were happening in conjunction, we laid people off that day. Yes. Like it was, we were on the West Coast, we had a New York office, but it was like, it was happening at the same time as the crash. Yep. Nobody really totally understood the magnitude of, I think, how it was going to unfold, how bad it was. I don't yep. know, but I know that those two things, like literally we sort of were at home. Nobody went into work that day, but also we had layoffs. And to me that yeah. it's that to me, those two things are really inextricable they can't be separated and then the other big yeah. memory is, is having dinner with some friends all of whom worked in the tech industry and having uh you know our one really plain spoken friend be like you know clearly things are gonna get bad a lot's happening here and she goes but we're gonna be okay 
She's like, yeah. let's not let's not kid ourselves about who's not going to be okay in this economy and who is. Yeah. And it was a pretty harsh, you know, it was a harsh lesson and we see it over and over. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I think who winds up getting screwed in these things and, and the definition of like, you know, what is truly screwed? Like, you know, people, people died in 9-11. Yes. Um, uh, horrific. And then, you know, our economy slowly recovered. Um, and it was just a shocking, it was shocking for people. And I think um, as you get older and you live through these things, uh, you, you start to realize these things pass. It is the human condition. There have been wars. Uh, there will continue to be wars um, in our lifetimes. There are boom and bust cycles in the economy. And, um, you know, you can prepare for them. Um, doesn't mean they won't be shocking when they do happen. But in the uh, generally things will, will pass and things will be okay. Uh, and I think that leads up to 2008, which was, you know, the, the Great Recession for people who don't remember that. Um, I yeah. was running, uh, I guess, Mahalo at the time, which is now inside venture backed uh and uh had just started uh was just about to start angel investing and um the market collapsed i didn't have a lot of equities i had moved all of my uh money in the markets into revenue box backed muni bonds 18 months before the market crashed no so uh i just had a sense that everything was overheated wow, it didn't make well sense done. to me and i moved a hundred percent of my money into revenue backed muni bonds uh which are ones that have like um uh, a bridge behind them you know so the bridge tolls go to the bond holders first yep. so even in the rare case where a muni bond would go under which is very rare like a, a town has to go bankrupt because they get sued or something um the municipal ones of the bonds are the uh, my understanding was that those were the most um valuable and it turns out they weren't in fashion so the core value of the bonds went up like 10 or 20 percent and i was making four or five percent tax-free so i wound up playing the economy perfectly and then i went into investing mode so mm. i was a little older 37 years old 38 years old and it was clear to me that the warren buffett quote having lived through the dot-com era was in effect and i immediately uh said time to invest uh what a great time to be investing in companies what a great time to be buying stocks and uh so as Warren Buffett said, be greedy when investors are fearful and be fearful when investors are greedy. Um, everybody was scared. I became greedy. And right, you know, the last couple of years, people have been greedy. And I've been really scared talking on this yeah. podcast. Bill Gurley's been very clear about this. Fred Wilson, anybody who's been through these things, a couple of super cycles. And so as I uh, said on the all in that came out today, and I've been saying on this podcast, you know, now's the time to be an angel investor. Uh, and a lot of the big wins I had you know, came to fruition in the last five years. And now I'm back to investing in companies. Uh, I mean, it never stopped. But, you know, I think this is the year, uh, the next two years are going to be the best time to be investing in startups, the, the valuations will be reasonable. Mm -hmm. uh, competition for employees will not be as intense. There's always competition for great team members, but it won't be like, they'll have six or seven offers and three of That's them will right. be from big tech companies that now have hiring freezes. Um, so you're not competing with Uber and Facebook because uh and you know apple because they're probably uh either have freezes or are maybe even going to be laying people off so mm -hmm. uh and twitter has a freeze i guess on now and is laying some people up sometimes people don't even realize the stress they're under they get physical symptoms like headaches maybe they're grinding their teeth i used to do that even digestive issues right you get that pit in your stomach well those are all indicators of stress and let's not forget about doom scrolling like i do oh my god and not getting enough sleep when you're a founder or capital allocator, 
The weight of the world is on your shoulders and it's stressful. And listen, it's been a stressful couple of years with the pandemic and the swings in the stock market. So here's your reminder to take care of yourself and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers you video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. There is no shame in the game of getting therapy. Go do therapy, get some stuff off your chest, have somebody listen to you, and just have a place where you can spend an hour, a half hour, whatever it is, and just let it be about you and solving your problems and releasing a little bit of that anxiety. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can do it on your time, and you can do it at your space, right? So give it a try. Twist listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash twist. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash twist. Um, but where were you in 2008, and uh, how did your career change? I tend to think of it all as a little bit of a lost decade. Like we were mm. certainly investing in different types of content. That was, I mean, it, because there was sort of less pressure, CBS came in and bought CNET. So we had mm. a lot more flexibility then to sort of experiment yeah. with things like uh, digital video. And, and mm. we had already sort of done some of the pivot to video. So I actually, I sort of credit that time as being a weirdly useful creative time like we got to play mm. with every single format because everybody was trying to figure out the next way to make money in media in particular yes. and so without that i think i wouldn't necessarily have had the exposure into every single version of my <laughs> every single version of journalism at that time mm. right like i did tv and i was doing digital video and all of that um well well i'll just say it's a really great point when the market is down people get very experimental Try they stuff. try a lot of different things. And when the market is up, you know, maybe people are chasing something or whatever. It, it's very nice for artists uh, and um, for founders and, and creatives generally in that down market because, you know, the expectation is low. You can start doing a little experimenting. You try some of this new thing called podcasting because what do you got to lose? You know, yeah. the business is like, kind of hey grinding. Guys, yeah. Like we were sort of streaming TV was starting to be a bigger deal. We had a little show for TiVo. TiVo. I mean, at that, that is the point where I wrote CNET a business plan. I was like, hey, let me do a half hour broadcast caliber uh, Mm. online video show. We got a deal with Xbox out of it. Like I went all over the world shooting the show because we were looking for the next big thing. It is like Mm. a useful time. But I will say like in terms of awareness, certainly in 2001 too, I was so young. Um, Did they do layoffs in that 2008 period? Or just hiring freeze or some, I think we did some layoffs and a hiring freeze. Mm. I mean, honestly, it felt like that whole period was a little bit of a sideways freeze you know it was just a little bit sideways yeah um and we did fine as a company but it was all like a little bit stuck but there's also the stuff you're not aware of until later it wasn't Mm -hmm. until later that i went back and took stock and was like oh like we bought a house in 2006 like a bunch of dum-dums and you know Mm. (laughs) like there's there's there are differing levels of awareness i think depending on what stage you're in your life so i'm like i feel very to your point ready for a downturn now i'm like let's go we're we're i call my financial advisor i'm like big sale at the stock store we shop in like what yeah exactly <laughs> what's, what's well, happening i mean i uh if we did this nice little exercise um recently on the pod where we just said what's the market cap of the market cap of the company minus out the cash what's the enterprise value now as long as that company is not going to have the risk of ruin going to zero and they have customers and product you know that there should be some value that would be created after that point so you know, whether it's Coinbase, which had a, a little bit of a pop after, you know, we had this like panic selling last week, um, or 
you know, Robinhood had a little bit of a pop. I am a shareholder. Uh, Uber had a little bit of a pop. You'll start to see this bouncing along the bottom. You know, yeah. I don't like to give financial advice, but my advice to you, Molly, uh, just not to anybody else, is if you were did love a product, you know, like uh, you did love Peloton, uh, or you did love Robinhood, or you did love Coinbase, or you did love Uber or DoorDash, mm -hmm. uh, you could dollar cost average into those companies, uh, which mm -hmm. basically is a fancy way of saying buying a little bit at a time, taking nibbles, and then you know, if the price goes down, you buy a little more. So if you said, "Listen, I love this company." Uh, I'm going to buy it at $10 a share. Oh, it went down to seven. I bought some at seven. Oh, it went down to five. I bought some at five. Mm -hmm. Oh, it went back up to seven. I bought some at seven. Oh, it went up to 10. I bought a little more at 10. So if you were going to buy $6,000 worth and you bought it $1,000 on the first of the month each month, well, then your average price might be 7,000. If you were going to buy it anyway, yeah, you know, most people would say if you're going to hold it for 10 years, it doesn't matter, you know, if you bought it all at 10 or five and everything in between, because you're buying it with the hopes that it's going to go 5x. So if you want to optimize, some people like that dollar cost averaging approach. I like that. Other people like uh, to just make the bet and set it and forget it. I'm a set it and forget it guy. Love the company. Bought the shares at a penny or 50 cents. It goes up to 60. It goes down to seven, which is what happened to my Robinhood shares. I'm I'm in it. I think it'll Sit go tight. back up to 60 yeah. in 10 Sit years. Tight. And I'll just sit here and I'll wait. And, you know, Uber will go to, I'm convinced Uber will be a trillion dollar company. People might think I'm crazy because it's been a 50 billion to you know, $80 billion company as a public company. But I, I see a, you know, 10 to 20 X there. And that's why I'm holding you have to make your own yeah. decision as to why you're holding and I look at the product. And every time I use it, I'm delighted. And if it wasn't there, I would be freaked out uh, if I couldn't use it. So it's a great good question. Metric. It's a good metric. Okay, um, and a great so, question. Exactly. Great question. All right, on a we're just taking a complete turn in topic from downturn to we're going to the moon. Actually, we're going to low Earth orbit uh, <laughs> with Alex Fielding. I'm going to find the, all the junk flying around. Exactly. CEO of Privateer, Alex Fielding, coming up next. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups interview edition. We know you've been getting interviews all week long while we are off on our adventures in Miami. Today, we're very... I definitely and hopefully jason are very excited about this we have alex fielding the ceo and executive chairman at privateer space a company mm -hmm. built in specifically to create technology to clean up the space debris problem alex co-founded co-founded privateer with steve wozniak who's the president and dr mora baja who's chief scientist and alex uh i cannot wait to hear more about what you're building there welcome to the show Welcome yeah, to the show. You. Alex, are you a sanitation engineer by trade? Uh, or uh, <laughs> an engineer by... <laughs> I like I'm this. Hoping. This is going to be a new job. Uh, sanitation engineer to the stars. Literally. Well, that's, that's, that's where this all started. Tw 20 years ago, Waz and I were building a company called Wheels of Zeus. We were building Apple tags like 20 years too early. I remember. And uh, that was a bizarre time because, you know, there was no system on a chip for GPS 20 years ago. You had to do it all yourself. You had to calculate ephemeris, you had to do the hardware, you had to do the power management, you had to do the software. And Waz and I were pretty appalled 20 years ago, that shows how old I am, that half of the stuff we had on orbit was trash. So of our roughly 2,000 then satellites, about 1,000 or 1,100 were dead. And we used to joke about this, like, would we be the world's first space sanitation engineers riding on the back of the trash truck in space and tossing them in the compactor? But, uh, you know, this is the definition of the tragedy of the commons. Nobody did anything. 
Mm. And 20 years later, we're tracking roughly 33,000 things that are bigger than the size of a softball. They're bigger than 10 centimeters. Hmm. And 75% of that's trash, which is uh, unbelievable. Yeah. When you say well, trash, um, this is debris from mm -hmm. satellites and other space excursions we've had, correct? That's right. So what you're looking at here at privateer.com is, uh, is an app we call Wayfinder. And all of the orange dots are active satellites. All the teal dots are dead satellites. And everything that's pink or purple or gray uh, and, and if you close that window out, you can, you can zoom out. And uh, what you'll see when you zoom out, keep zooming, keep going back. And this is the giant ball of trash we've made in space. So mm. most of what you can see here is some form of debris, rocket bodies, um, you know, fuel, paint chips, nuts, bolts, screws. Mm. And, and what you're looking at here is stuff that's bigger than those paint chips, nuts, bolts, and screws. You're looking largely at pieces of trash that are, you know, like I said, bigger than a softball. So it's kind of terrifying. I mean, imagine somebody throwing you a softball, but it's doing 18,000 miles an hour. Uh, that's, that's a little, little tough to deal with. Listen, lots of founders are loosey-goosey with their personal phone numbers. You know about this problem. People start putting their personal mobile phone in documents, proposals, and it makes things super messy. If you're running your own company, you need to be professional and open phone helps you create a business phone number. And it's really easy. How easy is open phone? You install an app and you're done. You pick your number, you're done. And you can create a shared phone number. How great is that? You know how you have like an email for customer support, you do VIP at... Now you can have that for a phone number where multiple employees can feel calls and texts, including those texts, super important, because that's how a lot of business happens. A lot of these young folks, they don't want to talk on the phone, they want to text. Well, open phone can help you with that as well. And it's affordable already. It's just 10 bucks a month. I mean, it's so affordable. It's ridiculous. I think they should triple their prices. I think I would pay 30 bucks a month for this, but they charge 10. Twist listeners can get an extra 20% off that for any plan for your first six months. That's even ridiculously generous. I mean, that puts it down to $8 a month. You're kidding me. You need to do it for yourself as an executive or a salesperson. Openphone.com slash twist. And if you have an existing phone number with another service that's overcharging you or that doesn't have this incredible feature set, they'll put it over for you. If you're thinking about phone numbers, I just want you to think openphone.com slash twist. That easy, folks. Remind us for those who are not familiar with the, the kind of dangers of space trash, why <laughs> all the ways that this can kill us. Well, you know, MV squared is still MV squared, right? So the, the problem is, uh, if you think about getting hit by a bullet, and that bullet's doing, you know, a kilometer a second, just imagine that bullet doing 17 times or 18 times that speed. And that's what you're looking at, um, you know, here. So it's, it's really a, a huge challenge. And it's even worse, because it's kind of like that movie, um, you know, Alien, right? It's like Jaws in space. You don't ever see the monster until it's on you. And unfortunately, you know, it's the things that you can't see that can really mess things up in space. We, we have things crash into each other in space all the time. We have so many problems in low Earth orbit, especially that the gap between science fact and science fiction is just massive. I mean, we, we can't reliably dock in space. We can't reliably see the debris in space uh, smaller than 10 centimeters. We can't reliably navigate. Uh, between objects in space, partly because of both of these reasons. And, you know, this enables the next frontier in space. If, if we all agreed that we invested in launch to get SpaceX to get this number down to like 5,000 bucks a kilo, I can put that Coke can in space for less than $5,000. 
then all the infrastructure, it's like we built the highways to the stars, but now we have to build the restrooms, the Mickey D's and everything else that goes to service it. So that means tug tow operators, people doing station keeping, people trying to refuel satellites, people try to grab the dead ones and Delta V them out. All of that stuff needs this enabling underlying technology to be able to do it. And it's missing. So nobody's ever been killed by space trash falling from space is my understanding uh, with some light web research. And the ISIS has had the International Space Station has had to move a, a dozen times or so. Uh, their protocol is when they're one in 10,000 chance of running into debris, they'll just reposition. So I guess is this a problem today? Or are we really anticipating now that low Earth orbit satellites are being put in in a massive constellation by at least three companies, Amazon, SpaceX, uh, Starlink, and then there's a third one, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, one of my producers will help me. Is this a forward looking problem, you think? Because we haven't, I think ever had any kind of uh, fatal instance in space or on the ground because of space trash. It, it's, it's rough, right? There's, there's a couple of observations that are really painful uh, just from a, a humanistic standpoint. Like if you look at our launch sites and those inclinations that are convenient from those launch locations, and you look at where things are on orbit, uh, mostly from those sites. And, you know, keep in mind, many of these sites like Kennedy they were planned in the 60s um, or, you know, and, and they've been operational for some time. The way that re-entry for objects in space, natural orbital decay mm. with re-entry that doesn't happen over water was planned. And it was planned was that this stuff would ultimately burn up and the bigger chunks of it would land in places that the United States didn't care about at the time. So we're talking sub-Saharan Africa, you know, the Congo. Uh, you, you're far more likely on those re-entry statistics uh, to, to land in a place that is not Manhattan. Okay, Manhattan was yeah. set to be the lowest risk place to be hit by space trash. Yeah. So the stuff does re-enter and it does re-enter fairly frequently. And we've just been lucky that most of the time it lands in a sandy place or in the ocean and doesn't land in your backyard mm. or on a school. Mm. Um, but I, I do agree with you, not having an on-orbit casualty, which is a great thing, is something that Traditionally, we didn't worry about a ton. We worried about it a little bit. Now we worry about it a ton because, like you said, we move the space station fairly frequently. I mean, we move it, you know, four or five times a year minimum over the last couple of years to avoid debris. And that debris is generally something that we can sense, detect from ground based phase array and from some sensors in space. And then we can kind of move the station as needed. And we, we have some tricks to, to how we do that. But look at what happened in November, right? The Russians blew up Cosmos 1408 in an ASAT attack. And all the debris that resulted, that was an explosive payload from a missile hitting their own dead satellite and shooting debris the way an explosive charge does. It just went everywhere. Boom. Why did they do this? Mm -hmm. This was a test to see if they could blow up other people's satellites in an aggressive fashion? Well, it was overflying their own airspace. They didn't really make any qualms about doing that. So they, they certainly didn't ask anyone for permission. And they did it at the time. We all thought it was, I say we all, the, the bulk of the space community thought this was clear posturing and banging on the chest that if you overfly Ukraine, we will blow you up because mm -hmm. they could. They proved the capability yet again. It was a, it was a, if you overfly a satellite. So if you want to take pictures yeah. of Ukraine, we're going to blow up your satellite. Right. Right. Sure. 
Yeah. And I, I think, you know, for, for wronger, for wronger, because there was no right reason to do that. The problem was the, the propaganda machine in Russia did a fantastic job saying everything is good. Situation is green. It's all usual up here in space. What was the truth? We had seven astronauts and cosmonauts on board that we told to go to sleep in their escape vehicles in Soyuz and Crew Dragon, lock the door, and wait. Why mm. did we do that rather than move the space station or just tell them, come home? Yeah. Right? It's dangerous. It's an unknown situation. We can't see the small debris. It's just as dangerous to them. The space station's covered in a skin that we call the Whipple Shield. Okay? It's like Kevlar and aluminum with a gap, and then there's some Kevlar and aluminum. And the idea is to kind of, you know, have the whatever hits it break up to smaller particles so that that bigger mass doesn't hit the hole and kill mm. everybody. We didn't know where to move them because everything around the space station, like you said, Jason, one in 10,000 is the criteria, right? If you're going to get hit, if the likelihood's one in 10,000, you move. But what if everything around you is one in 10,000? Mm -hmm. Then what do you do? Ah, yeah. And our resolution yeah. sucks. So if you have not very good resolution, and I can't tell you this is the safer place to go, what do you tell them to do? And it's heartbreaking because that debris is going by them just like George Clooney and gravity every hour and a half. But they don't just get to jump in the escape vehicles, right? They got to put their suits on. They got to go slide in. They got to close the doors. So this is like, uh, this is going to be PTSD for this generation of astronauts um, for a long time. And here we're and seeing the Whipple shield. That's what it looks like. You got it. Yeah. 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 So well, it's kind of like a, cr a crumple zone. It just slows down the impact of these things. Yeah. Right. One hopes. And, and it <laughs> so, gets hit all the time. I mean, we have right. a lot in, of holes in, fact, in space In station. May, right? It was May 2021. Astronauts on the ISS discovered a, a hole, a five millimeter wide hole in a robotic arm that was attached to one of the modules that they think was likely due to... So there's this, because you guys are thinking on space scale and planetary scale there's sort of the there's the danger now which is acute and we're to the point where we can't necessarily move the space station because the risk is almost equal everywhere and then there's this sort of farther out danger the the kessler effect the idea that as these items collide with each other they break up and create even more debris to the point where we might just trap ourselves on this planet because mm. there will be such a, a cloud of debris around us that we can't get off. Like, how much do you actually think about that? It's theoretical, I know. But. It's, it's theoretical. I mean, the, the, the thing is that we, a part of the things that we don't know in space, right? And I, I could write a, that would be actually a really boring book. The things we don't know in space, they're all terrifying. But there's <laughs> a whole lot of them that are very close to near Earth space. So we don't know orbital carrying capacity, which is kind of the, the way in space terminology of talking about how congested is the highway. And there are certain orbits now that are already so congested, your launch window will be very, very small. There are certain sun-synchronous orbits, polar orbits, where the FAA will only let you go maybe two hours a day. Why? The rest of the time, we have to space objects at a certain rate. Everybody wants to be there. It's a popular neighborhood. Um, and we don't have the resolution to know how to properly space or how to more closely space the objects. So we've got this significant gap between objects because our space tracking is so bad. We then don't know um, things like real astrodynamics. We treat all these objects in space like bowling balls, like they're spheres. So, and that's clearly not true. Like these satellites no longer look like Sputnik, right? So when you have a refrigerator with wings or a Coke can with wings, 
you know, its material properties, its drag uh, profile and its mass, if they're unknown, how in the world would you calculate where that thing's going to be on the next orbit? Especially if you treat it like, like a bowling ball. There's, there's hundreds of these bizarre problems that need to be solved. And the technology is being missing because Leo was not the focus of the old world to space. Leo's Low Earth orbit. Low Earth orbit. In 2022, digital ads are not what they used to be. Costs are increasing, attribution is less effective, and targeting is failing. It's, it's a bit of a mess out there, isn't it? So marketers need to diversify their media mix. We all know that. And they can do that with OOH. What is OOH, you're asking? That's out-of-home advertising. You remember murals, bench ads, maybe those posters that they put up on the side of uh, like construction sites? All of that stuff falls into the bucket of OOH. These kind of ads offer great reach, higher brand recall, and the lowest CPMs of any traditional ad type. But buying OOH is a terrible experience. You don't want to get on the phones with thousands of different vendors. Well, AdQuick is here to change that. It's a super easy way to plan, buy, and measure every kind of outdoor advertising from static billboards to painted murals. So I want you to go to adquick.com slash twist and mention twist to get $1,000 off your first campaign. And listen to this. If you plan to send more than $10,000 a month, email VIP at adquick.com for a VIP consultation. They added that for our audience to make it super special. VIP at adquick.com and tell them your Uncle Jason sent you. Terms and conditions apply because they're giving you that $1,000 off. So I guess now the question is, uh, in your solution, how do we get these things out of the air? Because my understanding is, well, they're moving at incredible velocity. You're saying they may not move perfectly, uh, i.e. it could just be a chunk off of this thing. So who knows what trajectory it's on. And so you got to find it. You got to somehow match its speed, get close to it, and then do something with it. How on earth are you going to clean up tens of thousands of little pieces uh, out there? Is this seem as impossible to do as it seems to my brain? Uh, or is it actually something that's within our ability today? It's, uh, there, there's a scale. So there, there are fantastic <laughs> companies out there like uh, Astroscale and ClearSpace are two great examples of companies that are working on docking with dead satellites and delta Ving them into the atmosphere so they burn up or moving things. There's companies that are now... What, did you, what was the term you used? delta Ving? delta V. Uh, delta, delta V. So Delta Velocity. V. Push it ah. push it into the atmosphere. Got it. Um, this, is, this approach you know, tends to work pretty well. I mean, we haven't uh, tested Astroscale and ClearSpace have not you know, tested on large uh you know real satellites yet but they're very close they've flown quite a bit they're they're getting better at, at things like um active rendezvous which is really just docking hmm. but you know to do that you have to know a whole host of things that are missing in space so privateer is working on building the platform that connects all of these capabilities the sensing and detecting the tracking to observation capability to developers everywhere so that they don't have to fly stuff in space. Because the other part of the, the challenge is everybody that wants to fly something, now that it's really cheap to fly, you know, SpaceX has got it to 5000 bucks a kilo. If you want to put something in space, if you want to put that Coke can in space, you could do it uh, for 5000 bucks a kilo. Well, as a result, everyone is putting something up and no one shares anything that's on orbit, at least not very well. So Privateer is working on breaking open 
that layer of things that are already in space with our own space assets to encourage developers to utilize those and share those through consumption-based APIs, similar to what Amazon's done uh, on the ground with infrastructure as a service with, with their data centers in AWS. Does that mean you want to just log where it is incredibly accurately and give that information to other folks to go clean it up? Is that what I'm reading? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're not running a fleet of uh, cleanup satellites. Our, our Pono-class satellites, uh, Pono is kind of Hawaiian karma or, you know, the word for kind of doing the right thing in Hawaiian. Mm-hmm. And we're headquartered, uh, we're headquartered in Kihei in Maui, Hawaii. The, the whole goal of these is to be able to sense and detect all the small stuff we can't see from the ground because we can only ah. see about 10 centimeters from the ground. And then to also provide developers capability looking down to see things with cameras, uh, radio decks, with radiation sensors because space weather is a big issue. Uh, and then So you want to put up satellites to help people find all the junk? Find all the junk and continue to do great things on Earth that require oh. space to do them. I mean, John Doerr just, just did this uh, billion one donation to Stanford, right, for the, the Climate Center. And his whole thesis was that climate is the next computer science, that we will, we will hack the Earth, we will hack the environment, and there'll be a new generation of people to do it. If that's true, and I mean, I can't help but think a good part of that's true, we're going to do it from space. I mean, we, you know, we screwed up the land, we screwed up the ocean, we screwed up the atmosphere, now we're screwing up space. If we're going to fix this, and I think we can because I'm a crazy optimist, we have to do it one step at a time the way we screwed it up one step at a time. So, so you're we're saying step one companies. is you can't, as John Doerr himself might put it, you can't manage what you don't measure. That's right. So it sounds like you're describing, uh, obviously, a technological solution, which is the sensing and the satellites and the mapping of this kind of growing debris field, but also a little bit of a movement? Absolutely, because we, we're big believers that, you know, if, if you look at the situation over Kiev right now, how many satellites with cameras looking down are overflying Kiev? It's quite, quite a number. Why? If you have one camera at one particular resolution, why couldn't we share that to get the same image? Why, why would we have to task all those satellite assets to do that? Um, and this problem is becoming more and more pervasive. You know, universities put up CubeSats quite often. You know, it's not rocket science for kids to put satellites in space. They're 10 centimeter cubes. And that's our minimum tracking resolution from ground-based phase rays. So guess what happens when the 10, meter, 10 centimeter cube is spinning? We can't see it anymore. Invisible. Yeah. So, so it's, we've it's become dangerous. so privileged with our access to space. We've done such a great job of getting stuff up there that we now have to worry about putting too much stuff up there. Mm-hmm. The number one controversy has been low Earth orbit satellites, I believe. Uh, these are going to be absolutely amazing for humanity and spreading internet to all the places in the world where it doesn't exist. We're going to get another billion people online. So they're absolutely fantastic uh, in terms of what they'll do for humanity. Um, and my understanding is these are modern satellites. These companies know how to... Um, maneuver them in space they're not junk and they have an exact plan for deprecating them uh over periods of time so should we worry about lower earth habits low earth orbiting satellites like starlinks and amazons and everybody else's or are they being done in a way that they'll just clean themselves up and they're it's it's not the same issue i I, look i mean i i think the these big satellite constellation operators are trying very, very hard to be mindful of not screwing up Leo uh, quite candidly yeah. because they have to operate there. Yeah. 
It's so it's actually in their own self-interest to make sure that we don't run out of orbital carrying capacity or so that we can see the stuff so that they don't crash into it and they, they don't create their own mini Kessler effect of things hitting uh, things and, and those things hitting things. The, the interesting thing about this is that if you look at those capabilities that are proliferating LEO, a lot of it's focused on global communication to the planet. Some of it is now starting to look sideways. It's communication to space. And, and then there's all of the things on the ground that connect to these things. There's a lot of science going on in space. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of one-off, I want to put my telescope in space, or I want to put my set mm-hmm. of you know, various sensors in space. That is more tricky um, in a bizarre way. Because now you as a small satellite operator putting up one thing have to be really mindful of all of the other things. It's like crossing a highway by foot, right? Like you have to, you have to watch out for all the things that are already on the road. And the larger operators are still missing the underlying technology to do autonomous collision avoidance. So there's great companies like Kahan working on this uh, to make sure that we don't hit each other in space. There's also the, the challenge of conjunctioning. And there's a bunch of companies out there that are behaving like extortionists basically selling conjunction services to constellation operators, taking people's state vectors and telemetry data and trying to determine when are you at risk of crashing into each other? When are you going to bump into somebody else's thing? And then, of course, the intelligence, well, who's obligated to move? And where should we move? Where's the lowest risk position? That stuff is coming, but Privateer is releasing our own service we call RELSIC, which is Kessler spelled backwards. And we're not charging for that 24 hours ahead. We're just asking space operators, please provide your telemetry and state vector. We'll provide the service for free because it improves mm-hmm. the whole space community. We shouldn't, it shouldn't be optional to crash in space, right? This shouldn't mm-hmm. be a market. Uh, this should be a technology that, that helps humankind. So that'll be open source in a way, like an open data project where everybody self-reports where they're located. You also have the trash located. So essentially you're making like open maps the open mapping project on planet Earth that a bunch of people can contribute to. That's right. And, and if the byproduct of that is, you know, um, you know, Molly's in a dorm room and she's decided she's going to do the next uh, app to track dark fishing, illegal commercial fishing in the ocean, and she needs a camera looking down for those boats and she needs an image classifier and she needs a radio antenna, um, we can provide her that capability through an API so she doesn't have to launch a satellite. And she can use Uh, that for a tenth of the cost of what it would cost her to do anything in space. And then the number of operators that are being mindful and thinking about how to not pollute space anymore can manage that infrastructure without, you know, adding additional risks and challenges to the to the bucket. Right. I feel like we should note here that one of the things it sounds like you're arguing for is a little less redundancy in space, that not every company needs its own set of satellites. Not every researcher needs its own satellite, which would rely on the companies that already have satellites there sharing that data. Is that... That's, that's right. A, I mean, a 80%, challenge? Well, 80% of the stuff that goes into space, it really is the long tail, right? 80% of the capabilities, the same capability, but we all have been putting it up because we couldn't figure out how to share it. Mm-hmm. The 20% are the bespoke sensors and the you know, instruments that science wants to put up there to do something very unique, and they, they need to test it. It's all super relevant, but it's not 80% of what people using space assets want to do with them. So we're, we're helping kind of bridge that gap to get the 80% of those resources to be available and shareable uh, by everyone, not just on our own satellites, but 
if you have a capability and it's in a place where people want it, please work with us to provide that to the cap- that capability to developers through APIs that they can, you know, call those resources from. And that way we don't have to put up more. And to your point, um, we need to share the services up there. So if there was a service level in space for cameras, you know, and other uh, services, this could be eventually like Amazon Web Services in space. And, and well, that's they're, what you plan on building. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's right. And, and you know, mm-hmm. Amazon and Microsoft and Palantir and others are already on that that heading that direction. Uh, but in, and if you go to privateer.com, just like stuff in space, you'll see, you know, all of the catalog info on all of the things on orbit, all of the things circling Earth. But there's a little party piece. We didn't announce it. If you go and look at any asset that you click on, that's an orange dot that's active where we have more than one source of tracking data. You can also see the deviation, which is another reason we exist. The, the average deviation in the lower space catalog, all the assets and all the people tracking them where we think they are. The average deviation is 200 kilometers. How do you dock with something? How do you get a trash truck to a trash can mm-hmm. if you don't agree on where the can is? It might be 200 kilometers away from where you think it's going to be. Yeah. So, yeah. so this, is, this is actually a, a good, um, if, if you click on, you, you were just on a, a Planet Labs flock a second ago. Um, and you can always what do is this a flock? So, so Planet Labs has cameras that look at Earth and image mm-hmm. the entire Earth every day. Right. And uh, so if you look at um, any of these, you know, satellites, like if you click the show filters at the top left, now you see on the screen, you can see that there's a number just moving slowly across your screen that says two. Yeah. In the middle of the if, planet. Yeah. If you go into the middle of the planet and just zoom in where that number two is, yeah, keep zooming. Oh, there you go. Now, if you now you'll notice that there's a gap between one and two. And it's yep. a pretty big gap. It's like, yeah you know, 70-ish kilometers. What that gap is demonstrating is the data that's up on the right-hand side of your screen. Number one is the high-resolution United States Space Command tracking data. So that's some of the best tracking data we have in government. Number two is the onboard transponder that Planet Labs has on their Flock satellite, which is a camera looking at Earth. And if you look at that data on the the right-hand side of the screen, you can see... Uh, you know, orbital speed, mean motion, and period. If you scroll down on the right in that little that box, you'll see the same data. So you'll see like 96.6 minutes orbital oh. period, 7.6 kilometers a second. So the one um, and two represent the same data set. Yep. In theory, two different data sets for the same device. For the that same are device. Off by about 70 kilometers. Okay. Yep. I and and here you're, you know, and I'm, I'm guessing that the gap just from what we're seeing on the screen, I'm not actually doing that math in a spreadsheet, but part of the reason that that gap exists is you can see here we're 0. 0.6 degrees off on argument apergy. So Planet Lab says 1449013, and above it in the Space Command catalog, we can see 1443247. Mm-hmm. So we don't agree at this particular moment where the heck this thing is. So how would you rendezvous with it? How would you connect with it? We also don't know things like spin rate or tumble rate. So we don't know how fast, let's say that the object was uncooperative, it wasn't sending us data. How would we know how fast it was spinning or tumbling? Would we know if we could reliably dock with it? Hmm. So all of these questions require on-orbit capability as well as ground-based capability, but you can, you can get all of this data from as many Sources is we'll provide it to us for free in this free version of Wayfinder at privateer.com. And then we've got Wayfinder Pro coming very soon here that has 
private sources of tracking. So other companies like, um, you know, like Exo and, and Numerica and others that, you know, can work with us to try to find a way to, to provide that tracking data to developers, uh, you know, they still earn a profit, space gets safer, and we don't put as much stuff up. Yeah, pretty amazing. I mean, I just in this, this drop down menu you have at Privateer, if you go to the second one, and you pick the constellation of Starlink, Molly, you can just see like, how many there are. So you just showed the data sources all and then you go to second one Starlink. And it's like, Oh, my Lord, they have a lot out there. And a lot of them are, I guess, you know, because they're flying in orbit. You know, you'd see many of them are over the ocean uh, for large periods of time. So you would think yeah, that that's, that that's time is, that that's wasted time when they're over the ocean, that's unless they're servicing all- boats, I guess. So if I'm looking uh, at that, and that's all Starlink, I am asking, yeah. I think the question that you're asking, which is why does anybody else need any up there well, at that point? So like, at, bandwidth, to what extent? I yeah, I mean, sure, right? Yes, bandwidth. But what I wonder is to what extent are companies going to have to cooperate with each other to make space for their own op- safe for their mm-hmm. own operations, and our, you know, future ability to travel to space? It, it just depends on what you want to do with them, right? I mean, the, the obvious killer app right now is, is Starlink. It's communications facing planet Earth. Yeah. Uh, but there's a whole lot of non-obvious applications. I mean, we, we still have, we don't really think about our GPS assets um, very often because they, they just work. But if we end up with a cloud of debris that's kind of like a virtual denial of service attack in space, or if we lose certain capabilities over certain areas because those you know, particular things have become damaged or were attacked intentionally, it, it's really dangerous. And there's also things that we want. Like we have a lot of sensors looking at Earth for climate science. I mean, we're doing oceanographic research, atmospheric research, all that's coming from space. I mean, when, when Al Gore gets on stage and talks a lot about uh, the inconvenient truth and, and where we are with clim- climate studies, you know, one of the things that's generally left out is how much of that work, how much of that science we do from space. So space is, is oh, not yeah, just I'm the not, next frontier. I want to be super clear. I'm not arguing against Starlink or the ability of us to launch these satellites. I'm just saying is part of Privateer's mission to say there may be times when you company should collaborate instead of re- instead of be redundant. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Collaborate, like share instead of launch. Share, wow. share instead of launch is definitely model one, right? And, and we, and we want to take advantage of it too. I mean, we, we're everybody's customer that we can be to, to use that data yeah I and mean, we're, we're not so, trying to be hypocrites it, let's talk about the militarization of space because there's a lot of actors who uh you know maybe aren't the most trustworthy or haven't been as upfront with us there was this 1967 outer space treaty that we agreed we wouldn't put wmds weapons of mass destruction nukes in space um but of course military satellites are everywhere but therefore monitoring stuff are, are people putting weapons in space today? And what, what is the what is the community think when you guys are talking to each other? Not like publicly, but you know, you're at some conference, people have a couple of drinks in them. The Russians, the Chinese, they got weapons in space. Do we have weapons in space? What do you think? I mean, we, we know that there are. Uh, and the, the DIA, um, the Defense Intelligence Agency published a report not even a month, well, was it a month ago? Maybe a month ago. But uh, it goes over the various types of weapons that certain countries, especially, you know, those countries that there's a lot of concern about, you know, uh, China, yep. Russia, 
in particular. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, India potentially having more capability there than, than people would feel comfortable with. How many different types of weapons there are that are already in space? We also have an app on Privateer that we're, well, it'll, it'll be launched here in 60 days called Comply, which just tells you how many satellites that are on orbit are in or out of compliance with the International Space Act and treaties. You know, we're not doing enforcement, but unfortunately for us, nobody's doing enforcement. So the, the lie in the Outer Space Act and the treaties is that everybody is required to sign it that goes to space. So we all sign the same thing saying we will not put weapons in space. We will not do certain things in space. But it sure seems like some people kind of had their fingers crossed behind their backs when they did it because we have, we as the space community worldwide have done some really horrible things in space. And there's also a number of assets that have violated the Space Act and treaties just out of greed, right? Because intent is really hard to prove. Right. But hey, if your satellite has 5% of the fuel left, do you want to move it to a graveyard orbit with dead things? Or do you want to leave it in place and just pray you can use it until it goes out of fuel? Because that's money for big companies. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I mean, if yeah. we look at um, ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic misses, mm -hmm. like, these things can get anywhere on the planet in an hour or two and, and blow stuff up, uh, at least according to pop culture and war games. But if you put nukes in satellites, eh, they just got to go down. They don't have to go back up, right? And going up, it's a lot of fuel. Um, and then I guess the Russians blew this thing up. So they blew it up with a missile or did they just send a kamikaze style satellite at it? Was there actually explosives in it when they blew that satellite up? Or do you yeah, not they, need explosive? You just go really fast and you just crash a big mass into another big mass and that's enough. You don't need a bomb. Well, this is, this is actually kind of the, the, one of the worst parts of this is that, you know, we do have pretty good um, in, intelligence around things that happen in space. But when this happened, the Russians knew that there's no enforcement body. I mean, a lot of us will chastise them and say, this is a horrible, horrible thing that you've just done for all of us. It's a really dangerous and stupid thing. Right. It's even dangerous and stupid when you have your own cosmonauts on the space station, which is now at risk because of what you've done. I can't imagine being one of those cosmonauts on board and having your other crew members and comrades go, what the hell? And right. I'm sure that, that they didn't know. I'm sure mm -hmm. that the Russian government didn't give Roscosmos a quick heads up before they decided what they wanted to do. Uh, but this... The, the the missile that they launched was off of a boat. They ah. sent it up, and they also the the crazy thing is, what do we know, and what did we not know? We mm -hmm. it wasn't even on our scope of tracking. It was over Russian airspace when it happened. Mm -hmm. So what did we see on our ground based phase array? We saw many many dots where we once saw one because the explosive charge resulted in wow. chunks of things. Right. So we didn't even see the explosion. It's not like we have a playback video or a forensic capability in that part of Russian airspace. So we couldn't unwind it and say, oh, wow, a missile went up and blew it up. How did we know that the Russians actually did it? Hmm. Well, they actually listed and uh, they did the responsible thing in their own airspace. And they issued a NOTAM, a notice to airmen for pilots in the area that there was going to be a missile leaving a boat there that, that morning. And to just not fly in the airspace because, you know, hey, if you're in a plane, you could get hit. Wow. So they actually publicly notified their own community that they were going to do this. They didn't say we're going to go blow up a satellite. They just said we're launching a missile. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. The, the Russians actually worked on a system called a FOBS, 
bombardment system. And it's a warhead system that uses low Earth orbit. Uh, and um, just before reaching its target, it deorbits through a retrograde engine burn. It first developed the system as a nuclear weapons delivery system. I'm reading from the Wikipedia in the 1960s, one of the first Soviet efforts to use space to deliver nuclear weapons. Uh, in August of 2021, the People's Republic of China tested a weapon that combined a FOBs with a hypersonic glide vehicle. Um, like a kinetic bombardment system, but with nuclear weapons, FOBs had several attractive qualities. It had no range limit. Its flight path would not reveal the target location, and warheads could be directed to North America over the South Pole, evading detection by NORAD's north-facing early warning system. It's crazy. Well, and this is if you if you look at what you're looking at here in this. Mm -hmm. um, so so this is this is the document I was talking about from DIA. This is yeah. this is only I don't know. I think they published it in March. So these things are not speculative. These things are actually cataloged. And in this report, you'll also see the volume. How many of these things have been launched recently? Where are they uh, on orbit? And it's terrifying, right? Yeah. And it should be. Because yeah. this is this is part of, and, and I am not a, you know, Privateer is not a, a, a company working on these types of things, weaponizing space and so on. I mean, this is, this is totally uh, opposite of what we, what we like to see happen. But this this challenge is if we knew what where these assets were, right? Mm. Then w what do we know about their capabilities? Mm. You know, uh, how many of these types of capabilities to grab an object and throw it somewhere, or to to blow an object up with an energy weapon from space? These are no longer speculative things that just happen in weird science fiction. They're things that are now being worked on and developed in science fact. That's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Well, let's, yeah, I mean, let's tie this to your business. I mean, I would imagine that uh, for you in terms of launching that pro product, which I assume is paid, that's the business plan here, that governments must be clients. Like who, how, how will you make money? And I would imagine that must be part of it, right? Well, then we're focused on commercial space first. So we're, we're working with constellation operators like SpaceX, like Amazon, like others who have their own things in space that are, that have the same challenges. Now their customers could totally be governments. And, and don't get me wrong, we're not turning away business from friendly governments trying to learn things about space environmentalism and sustainability and how to traverse space more safely. They, they could certainly use the data to improve their own capability. But, you know, this is a, this is an area where we're being very, very mindful of how you pick who you provide services to. You know, we're not trying to be the gatekeeper or say that there are bad people or good people, but this becomes one of those things of, you know, what do you sell to Russia in this moment, right? Mm -hmm. Or whoever is doing something that you really believe is a wrong in the world in the moment. Uh, the flip side of it is, would we turn down Russian data? Right. I mean, that's a that's a really hard right. um, consequentialist kind of argument. I mean, right now, uh, even in the privateer platform, you'll find data from Vimple from the Russians. Um, that's important data tracking space trash. Would we turn it away? No, we wouldn't turn it away. Would we be Would we be their customer? No, wouldn't be their customer. But hey, uh, anything that keeps the space environment more more sustainable, definitely want to make sure that we do that. Amazing. Well, continued mm. success with it. And uh, thank you for doing this important work of uh, keeping the skies clean. 
Yeah. yeah, this is yeah, fascinating for sharing and with so us all the consequential. Stuff. Thank you yeah. so much. Come, please come back and tell us yeah. how it's going. Tell us as soon as yeah, somebody invents the big fishing net, scoop it all up. <laughs> we want to. Yeah, <laughs> it feels like we're going to get to the point. First, so you tell us. <laughs> you, it feels you like we get to the point where there'll be drones just zipping around space, find this stuff just while we're sleeping, just pushing it into the atmosphere. Yeah, Ooh. like just it'll be like a little Wally picking up like a nut, a ball tier. You know, it's, like a, coming coming soon. A six kind of beer, you know, like mm. whole bottle mm. of uh, you. Uh, by the way, I have to say, you could find Alex on Twitter at two three four five six seven eight. I don't know how early you had to be to get that username, but well, wow. it turns out at Jason was taken. So yeah. um, <laughs> I, yeah. That's a, yeah. that was all yeah. that was left. That's all I that was had, left. Uh, yeah, exactly. I had at Alex, I considered changing my name, but then I got at Jason. I traded it. <laughs> That's, All right, continue oh success. Goodness. We have a very special. I wish we had some music and like they didn't a fuzzy even tell screen me about this. A very special OK Boomer for you. This Aww. is like very self-reflective, but I, I, I did listen to half of it um, when they started talking about you. Um, I guess the OK so Boomer group is Rachel coming on to talk about this. I didn't approve this or know about this, but I, I like it. I like <laughs> taking the initiative. Uh, this week's OK Boomer. Oh, okay. All right. Um, this is a high risk maneuver, but I uh, came out well. So well played. Uh, I like you taking a little bit of risk. Um, so, so tell us uh, what was your concept for today's episode? So on today's episode of OK Boomer, I got to speak to Presh, your chief of staff. And I mm. also got to talk to producer Nick, producer Justin. We okay. talked about everybody's path into how they got mm. their jobs, their favorite parts about working at Twist and at mm. launch. We even got to talk about how it was. Um, when Molly joined. So that was a really cool episode. And I thought it was a good episode to have air the week we were all going to be in Miami. See you together. Very charming. And hanging yeah. out together. It's lovely. I listened yeah. to the Molly. Development. I, what a good idea. I listened to the Molly part. Molly, what did you think? I don't know if it you listened so to it. It was so awkward. Yet. I mean, it was like oh. when you pass someone a note in class and then they read it right in front of you. Like it was, you know, it was very, I just oh. tried to think of myself in the third person for a minute. Huh. And then I was like, I need to step it up in this master class and producing thing. You'll hear it. You'll <laughs> hear it all. But it was very lovely. All right, so, so it's Very a little lovely. inside baseball, but I think peek behind it the does. It does. It's a peek behind the curtain, but it, it, I think there might be some nuggets there of for people who um, you know are running companies. I think investing in uh, young people in the early part of their careers, and I think young people investing in their own careers and taking it seriously is uh, a really great way to run a business, a fun way to run a business, and it just requires both parties to buy in. And, and, I, and what I really liked about it was it was great for me to hear. Um, because I don't do reviews and I don't like to talk to you all about like compensation and all that stuff. I have people for that. <laughs> um, but it was nice to hear that you all love it and you all love the challenge. Uh, and uh, like the, you like taking years out of your career path, which is what I tell people. If you come work for me, you're probably going to take five years, 10 years out of your career path. After you've worked for me for two or three years, people are going to start trying to hire you because, you know, they're going to look at you as like, oh, J. Cal um, is good at spotting talent, probably my superpower. And good at mentoring talent or demanding excellence and, um, you know, giving you a little push there to, to do more than you maybe think you're capable of. And so pretty yeah. I, I, had, I had dinner with Presh last night, in fact, who just started as special projects for me when he was 19, uh, you know, marketing, building videos and, and doing, you know, simple marketing tasks. And now it's my chief of staff. And I had a good com conversation about that. And then there's a way to keep uh, folks, which is keep them challenged. Number one, people don't quit jobs. They quit bosses. Um, and so keep that in mind. It's not the job 
or the company that people quit typically it's typically the boss they quit they, they just fall out of love with the boss and they don't feel inspired um or maybe they don't feel um respected or maybe they don't feel supported all of those things and i think it's pretty reasonable and so you need to be challenged but you also need to step up and you have to want it and both parties then are in a pretty good uh, relationship and then i also figured out how to keep you guys here for a long time <laughs> you guys know what that is yeah what is it carrie is it carrie what is it you haven't experienced yet but uh preshy poo got a little tasty poo as did nick because <laughs> we sold we had an opportunity to sell some shares early in one of our breakout winners we took the opportunity to do that and the way it works in venture just to tip cards and this isn't i don't think in the episode but you know if you have carry um which in a media job that doesn't exist uh you know at npr or you know cnet or you know the ringer or maybe they get stock in i guess some modest stock in uh yeah, maybe people get various you know types of equity maybe or whatever, bonus but... may, a bonus might be more aligned but it's right. not like unlimited upside of owning equity in high growth startups. And so, you know, pressure was able to, um, you know, get a little taste of one of those unicorns. And then, um, but we only sold 20% and you vested over four years. So he probably got a percent, like 25% of 20%. So then that means he had 25% of 20% would be 5%. So he has 20 times that amount uh, backloaded. And then I said, and he was like, yeah, there's a lot of money waiting for me as I invested. And then I was like, and that's but one company. What if you wind up having three of those? Now it's three times. Now it's 60 times what you've already got. Now, what if those companies 10x from here, which is a possibility? Now it's 600 times what you have. And he had never thought about it that way. But that's really what you have to think about. You know, these companies can 10x. Um, I think it also go down to zero as we, well, that's generally don't go down to zero, but they could also lose 80%. It's like that's so. happening. Zero sometimes happens. But anyway, I it think that's the long term. Well, it also keeps you around. And one of the great, balancing things i think is employment in this country is um what they call um, at will but it's at will for both parties you know if you think it sucks to work here you can walk at any time and if i think you're not pulling your weight we can fire you at any time and, and that's one of the great yeah. things about the american economy um is that we have kind of taken what's best about america uh the freedom uh dare i say i hope i canceled for that and we, we actually codified it in employment, which is you're free to do, you can free to walk out the door anytime you want and you're, you, you could get cut anytime as well. So it, it just, it, I wish healthcare worked that way, Molly, where the healthcare wasn't tied to employment. That would be the big win because because oh, yeah. healthcare is tied to employment. All the entrepreneurship, all of it would allow people to move more freely. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of people, you, you don't experience it with young people, but you and I experience this, Molly, with children and families. Um, you know, if you the first thing you have to think about when you're changing jobs is healthcare. Yeah, what's my healthcare situation going to be? How do I get that work that out? Oh, what was my healthcare before? And it's like, should we really be making people think about that in 2022? Like, nope. there should just be a base safety net. I, this is really, and you know who agrees with this? Paradoxically, everyone. Ironic, ironically, no, David Sachs. Yeah, you know my 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 best friend, one of my best friends in the world for a long time, and you know people are like, oh, he's crazy right wing, whatever. And it's like he's believes in uh you know uh universal health care well it's funny because people don't know i know we're like a little off the rails right now and what is happening but mm -hmm. my financial advisor we were having this conversation about like he's pretty conservative and we were having this conversation yeah. about healthcare, and he's like well they have that it's medicare i was like no like he literally thought yeah sincerely believed that medicare exists he thought we had a universal layer of 
healthcare available to anyone. Some people, not for we have it for the elderly and for people who are extremely disabled. Like it was such a weird. But I was like, whoa, 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 you because he was complaining about Obama and the you know the Affordable Care Act and whatever. And I was like, honestly, we'd be better off if he had gone all the way and made that. You think. The, the thing that they were trying to accomplish already exists, which is why you're not. And then he was like, oh, yeah, no, that should totally exist. I'm like, oh, Medicaid okay. is designed Agreed. for people with limited income. Medicaid is Medicare, designed for yeah. people with limited income, but very limited. I mean, it's not it's, like it's he was like, oh, I just thought everybody had a base layer no matter what, like backup. And I was like, yeah, no. Anyway. At the income limit anyway. for Medi- <laughs> Medicare's income limit is $1,200. I mean, that's 14000 a year, folks, for those of you playing along. You know? Yeah. For like, a married it's company, it's 1700 if yep. the last I checked. Exactly. Like we can afford to have a base level of health insurance available to everyone and we should. And it's such a weird, but what's amazing is like when people are just like, oh, I thought we already had that because it seems so obvious. <laughs> well, it, you know, and I, I think we have to negotiate better. You know, um, there, there, there are countries like Canada where, you know, I was talking to somebody in the pharmaceutical business and they're like, yeah, we just, we're, we're in a standoff with Canada because they won't pay us for our drug. You know, right. whatever it is, $100,000 for treatment. Now, this is a really important drug for a small number of people. And Canada's like, yeah, $100,000, sorry, can't do it. They're just some hardcore negotiators like, yeah, we'll do it for 40 you know? And that's like a big gap between the two numbers. They're like, well, America's paying 120 And so why, we can't pay you 40 And they're like, okay, well, I guess we just won't use your medicine. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody in Canada is actually watching the store. And that's where like having a customer would be so important. You either need to have some crazy negotiator or you need to have a customer. You know, if mm-hmm. people... You know, this is where copay and having people having all the pricing on websites. Like, you know, when you go yeah. to a SaaS company, they don't tell you the price. Like, every doctor should be required on their website to have slash pricing, yep. and it should be here's our pricing, and then all that pricing should be in a database. So if you say, "Hey, I got to get knee surgery," and people do this for elective surgery, if you wanted to get, uh, you know, a, a, what do they call a nose job, rhinoplasty? If you wanted to get a a, a nose job or um, you know, liposuction, those people are, you know. Uh, because it's elective, mm-hmm. people shop for that, and people go yeah. to Korea for it. They'll go to Mexico for it. You know, I don't know if I recommend Mexico, but Korea is the <laughs> you know a uh, little a little sketchy. Watch but, uh, it. <laughs> I'm just saying. I know <laughs> there are situations where like it, it may not be the most robust uh, solution. Uh, whereas Korea has like the best plastic surgeons in the world, according to what I've read. Not that I'm considering anything here. You know, I'm not considering anything. <laughs> Um, you know, you you could you people basically what I'm saying is people shop. Whereas, like, people does shop. anybody shop, shop for knee surgery? I didn't, and then I found out my knee surgery was like whatever it was, fifty or sixty grand to just get yeah. my you know meniscus oh scoped. I, I mean, I didn't pay for it, so I was like, I'm not the customer here. It's my yeah. insurance mm-hmm. company's the customer. Yeah. You know, screw them. <laughs> so it's, it's just dysfunctional. Okay, so uh, let's go to OK Boom. Thanks, guys. Okay, Boomer. I understood the assignment. All right. Thank you guys for joining. This is a very special segment of Okay, Boomer. For those of you who don't know, Fresh is Jason's Jason's chief of staff. Justin and Nick are the other producers on the show with me. Thanks for having wanna, us. Can What's you guys up? introduce this yourselves a little bit? I want to hear like a fun fact. Um, all right, Justin, go ahead. Oh, man. Throwing him under the bus. Uh, I'm Justin. I'm the producer that publishes this show most days, and I help find a lot of guests. And a fun fact about me is I 
Peloton every day. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a fun fact. And I could probably, I haven't met another person that could beat me. But I know there's plenty. Fresh. Fresh, how do you feel about that? No, I'm I'm terrible at, at Peloton. Okay. But um yeah. No, that's that's great. Um I can I can go next. Um I'm Fresh, Jason. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh Jason's chief of staff. Um m- more recently. Um previously was working on well, I started at launch working on marketing stuff then transitioned onto the investment team, um, more focused on the accelerator. So like looking for early stage companies. Um, and then now chief of staff, which is like, I'm still figuring out. I don't really know what the role is. Um, the get done guy. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a ton of fun. Just like managing different projects that Jason's working on and he's an idea machine. So, you know, there's always something fun. Um, very cool but yeah that's me oh fun fact um, oh I um, I don't know this is a fun fact this is just top of mind I have like really bad posture and so I just started seeing a chiropractor and um, I have to go in like two days a week now and I'm on this like monthly like or weekly um, uh, adjustment thing and so I get let me know if you think up. it's a scam or not I've yeah, watched I so many chiropractor videos on YouTube yeah uh, I'm, not, I'm not here on <laughs> chiropractor TikTok Oh, is that a thing? Oh yeah, you hear the? Do you are you one of those people though that gets skeeved out by hearing like, people's like backs crack? No, no, no. I, I love I it. Like it. Yeah, me too. It's like it's like dopamine hits my brain every time I see one of those videos. But I, if I'm with this Justin. weekend startups switch to a chiropractic YouTube channel, we could oh, probably we do numbers two, two x within the next oh, two man. months. Easy. Fresh. <laughs> Pitch that to Jason. Next <laughs> idea he hilarious. has. Be like, listen, listen, listen. All right, last one over here, Nick. Um. Hey, everybody. I'm Nick. Uh, I work on this week in startups with Rachel and Justin and Jason and Molly. Um, I'm having trouble thinking of a fun fact. I'll be totally honest with you. I don't know that there's anything. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's something, but oh, come you, on. you had us do that. Off fun the fact is yeah. the job has totally taken over his life every <laughs> free fact. hour. He's <laughs> now thinking about producing content. <laughs> no, I like, uh, I enjoy my weekends and I try to have all of you enjoy your weekends as well. I try to not bother anyone at all over the weekend because i know that you guys are going i don't know 12 hour days during the week so yeah. i'm like at least let them have some saturday Sunday Yo, time. you guys what time we, do you guys go to bed go to bed um i normally end at like 10 9 okay but, so but like, i see like group chat messages oh those are I'm crazy in, i'm in pacific time so it's like 10 11 p.m sometimes yeah. and you guys are still like chatting it up in the group justin chat. justin and i have like a weekend have a weekend talk too justin and i have have a nice weekend chats but once the all-in summit's over hopefully that sleep schedule will get up back on it yeah it's always interesting with events because it's just like a new job on top of your uh, job already mm-hmm. and then you just have to fit it in somewhere yeah. either on your weekends or, or during the week it gets it yeah, the, the the last couple of weeks leading up to an event is always yeah. insane. Um, well, I guess and that's you where and, we are right now for the people listening. Yeah, and you and so this will go out the week of the All In Summit. We we've all met each other before, which was crazy awesome. I think I've met Nick and Justin maybe one or two times, maybe three. Fresh definitely only once, but it was amazing nonetheless. So really excited to to see you guys again. This we're recording this um, on Wednesday, May eleventh. Fresh is already in Miami. 
uh, Jason just left to Miami and the rest of us will be heading out on Saturday. What are you guys like most excited for, um, for either the all in summit or our little team retreat happening afterwards? Pressure. I'll let you pioneer that. Okay. Yeah. Um, most excited. Uh, so this is, we, ch- we talked about this kind of a bit earlier with Nick. Um, this is like the first conference we've done where, I mean, it's, it's no secret. Like we, we're selling tickets for $7,500 and most of the audience is like, um, fund managers of capital allocators. Um, and then outside of the scholarships and stuff, um, which were discounted. So, I mean, the conference has made a lot more money than we typically do. Um, for conferences. And so we're just able to do way more bougie things. Um, so like parties are probably going to be crazy. Um, like I've never been at launch where we've done, um, just like insane stuff. Um, like the themes of the parties, the first, the first nights. Um, and how long have you been like working at launch? Cause I think, have you been working here longer than Nick has? Um, slightly. Um, like a year longer, right? Yeah. I think a year. But me and Nick, I'll, we should we should talk about my Nick's like interaction. Um, there, yeah, we have intertwined uh, origin stories. Ooh, okay, so how long have you guys been working here total then? Um, me, I started uh, October 2017. Okay. We got to pivot the conversation because you actually got your job in a really cool way, right? Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Um, um, basically, yeah. So I um, I had listened to this week in startups um just was interested in tech from a young age and so found the podcast and then i was in university at the time um but after my first year i was just like uh this like isn't for me and i was like failing most of my classes and so i knew i couldn't go back um or else i just would have delayed the whole college process um and so after first year i was just like all right let me um just send a bunch of emails to people that I admire um, or that I'm like interested in learning more from. And so I sent like hundreds of emails that summer. Um, one of the person or people was, uh, was Jason um, because I'd Wait, say who the other, say who one of the other notable people was. Oh, um, was it Gary? Is that the one? Yeah. 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 Oh, I so, saw yeah, I actually, wow. I, I had talked. There's to, an alternate universe where Presh is going up. Garage sales and ripping off old people, <laughs> flip, flipping cards. Vayner Media. Oh, yeah. intern. Love that it. That was, um, I was really trying to actually, I was more interested in that than working for Jason. Um, Obviously. Do you know that my other job offer was at Sasha, which is like Vayner Media's like parent oh, company? Yeah. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. It's so funny. That's hilarious. Yeah. So I had, I actually got an interview there. Um, but it wasn't like interviewing with Gary. It was with like one of his team members. Um, and I get, I remember I took this like iconic photo of his like sitting in Gary's office um, and posted it on my Instagram and it felt nice, um, but didn't get, <laughs> didn't get an internship there. Um, but anyways, yeah, sent, sent a whole bunch of emails out. Um, and then, you know, Jason was like one of the, and he's like, he's like known for this. Like he's so good at email. Um, so I just sent him an email and like within three minutes he responded. Um, I sent him a huge thing like pitching an internship and, and then he responded like two things. Um, he said, uh, what are your skills and what do you hope to accomplish in life? Um, and then I sent him this huge email in hindsight. It was terrible because <laughs> he didn't read it. Um, but then he had this tweet um, like a week later or something 
um, and this was around the time that his book Angel came out. And so he tweeted out, uh, tweet a selfie of you and my book, and maybe we'll pick you to come watch um, Blade Runner 2049 um, in San Francisco. And so he, uh, he, he made that tweet, and obviously I'm like trying to do anything that I can to get in front of him. And so I do that. I tweet up the photo, um, me and the book. And then a couple minutes later, he puts me in a thread with his assistant, Jess, at the time. And she's like, um, cool. Do you want to come out this Thursday? Um, and it was like a Sunday night there. And I'm in, I was in Toronto. I'm from Toronto. Um, and so I like booked my flight ticket that night. Um, and it, it was like my first time to San Francisco. And it was literally like a two day visit. I was staying in like a hostel, USA, shout out USA hostels. Um, <laughs> grimy <place laughs> new ever. sponsor, new sponsor of the show. I've got to interject here, and if you're liking this this story from Presh, you have to go into YouTube after this yeah. and type type in "going to San Francisco?" Question mark. Whoa! Hashtag number one, and you're gonna find one of the best vlogs of all time. Is it Pre- Presh? Do you it's, vlog? it's Presh documenting this Wait, exact so experience, the full sequence. I watched it before joining, oh. and it was. I was like, should I take this job? Um, cause I was at a consulting company before and I was like, I, w- I want to learn everything about it. And Presh actually is the, the leading content about Dude, making no and, and choosing a job at launch. So I'll, I'll let it. you continue. You did the USA hostel that's thing so and funny. now you're actually going to the meeting in SF, right? Presh? Yep. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Justin, they watch that. Um, but yeah, so staying at the, staying at the hostel, um, the movies on a Thursday night. I go out, there's like 30 people there um, that and we, we met up by the Cafe X machine at the AMC and the Matreon in, in San Francisco. Um, so I was like super excited. It's like my first time in San Francisco. I'm like, yo, this is so cool. I'm seeing Cafe X. I just read about this robot machine. Robots making coffee. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> like, Living in the future. future, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, although I was so dripped out when I got to SF, I was like, yo, what? This place is so trippy. Because uh, I was like in like a terrible area. I probably was in like Tenderloin area or something just because that's where all the cheapest like hotels are. Um, and so uh, anyways, get get to the movie theater. Um, there's like 30 people there. Um, I'm like super introverted. So I'm not like going up to people and like talk to them. But I do see a familiar face. Um, and I, because of the podcast and, uh, but basically I, I see, um, the founder of superhuman there and I had, I only knew his face because I had met his brother doing like an onboarding call at the time, um, when they're doing these, the personal onboarding and the team was like 10 people. And so I was like, Hey, I know your brother. Um, uh, and like, uh, I love the product. And so we got, we got chatting there. And so that was cool. That was like my first like interaction was like, a silicon valley founder um and uh so met rahul there uh and then jason comes in meet jason i shook his hand and like said hey jason like great to meet you um i'm like the guy who flew from toronto just to like make sure he remembered who i was um and he's like oh cool we talked for like 30 seconds um but didn't really like talk about job or anything like that um and then you know other people wanted to talk to him and stuff and then we went and watched a movie and then that was the end of that interaction. Um, but what came of that, uh, after that movie, he sent me an email 
Um, he was like, we have this conference next week called launch scale. Um, if you want to come and help out for that, um, you know, we can figure out what you, what you do the, during the conference. And then, uh, after it may be, uh, give you a project to work on remote. And then if you're good, we can hire you kind of thing. So, uh, ended up doing that, flew back out to launch scale, um, met Jackie. She was the first person at launch that I met, um, Jackie, incredible. Um, and then just helped out, did whatever, mainly did like social media at the, mm -hmm. at the conference. Um, and then, uh, yeah, after the conference ended up meeting with Jason and he was like, all right, well, I'm going to give you this project to work on. Um, it's, uh, to organize 30 is so specific as Jason, you know, as Jason's ideas are, it was, uh, I want you to organize 30 dim sum meetups across the U S for uh, my book. Um, I was like, awesome. Cool. Um, I had no idea what to do, but I was like, he literally yeah. made me do the same thing. Not with dim sum. And he was like, <laughs> make us make a hundred meetups this year across, across, across the world. Right. When I got here, that was the, this guy's a playbook. It's almost like That's he knows hilarious. what he's doing or something. That's so funny. Um, but you, so here's the funny part. You actually started doing that and you actually did it. I didn't even get to do it. He was like, he gave me the project and then I flew back home and then he calls me and I was like, one, I didn't even know how he got my number. Um, but he calls me on the phone. I'm like freaking out. I pick up and he's like, Hey, it's Jason. Um, I'm like, Hey, what's up? And then he basically is like, uh, Hey, my, um, my head of marketing or head of growth at the time, um, he just handed in his two weeks. Um, so I'm looking to hire for like a marketing role. Um, and so if you want it, it's yours. Uh, you can work remotely and we'll figure out a way to like get you to SF. Um, cause at this point in time, he was like no remote. Um, and everyone was like in the office. Um, so yeah, uh, he, uh, I had to, I just like skipped out that whole process of setting up these dim sum meetups. Um, and, uh, and got the job, but I started working as a contractor, um, cause I was Canadian and, um, then, you know, long story short, we ended up setting up like a Canadian office and, um, hired a couple of Canadian folks and, all um, because of you. well, I mean, it conveniently worked out. <laughs> um, and I got my visa. It was, it was like, I mean, it was incredible cause I got my visa through that process. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, that, that's kind of the story of how I did it. And there's more, but I don't want to keep talking. No, how did, uh, so Nick, you guys said that your, your paths kind of intertwined, but what's the story with that then? Um, <clears throat> so I, I joined launch in January, 2019. So two years after you, a year and a half, I guess. Yeah. After Presh. Um, and I had been working for launch that that's when I joined full time. I'd been working, uh, on a freelance basis for a year before that, uh, working with Presh every night. Uh, <laughs> well, night, my time, I guess it was night, his time too. Um, cause he was in Toronto at that point, but I worked at major league baseball, um, at MLB network. Um, I was an editor and Jason reached out to me in like 2017, uh, right after I graduated from college. And he was like, Hey, um, you know, can you edit clips for us? We need, you know, we, we only have one person working on this and they need to do the show. They can't do clips, you know? And I was like, yeah, no problem. And I think I was getting paid to start like 15 or $20 an hour. Um, and I, I worked 
nights. So uh, at the network, you know, baseball is on at night and on the weekends. So I worked like, I think I had off like Mondays and Tuesdays or sometimes Mondays and Thursdays. And I would work like, it was the worst schedule ever, but um, you know, that's what you got to do when you start. But uh, yeah, it was like 6.30 to 2.30 AM. I, I worked and I would get home at like three. And then at, from like three to five, I would knock out clips. So my first interaction with, with Presh was sending him clips at like 4.30 in the morning. And him replying to me like, "Hey man, uh, why are you up so late? <laughs> are you good?" <laughs> or he was like, or "You might have said something like, are you? Is this like your morning, or are you still awake <laughs> from yesterday?'" Um, and then that's because I, I would send my clips to Presh. So that was uh, that was my first interaction with him. And then a couple months later, um, if I'm remembering correctly, I think somebody left launch the person that was there um i don't know i guess we shouldn't say names but whatever they they uh they resigned and uh jason was like hey do you want to come on full time um and i was i was living in hoboken at this point uh and and he was like i want you to move to san francisco and uh yeah i we i did and i i came on january 28 2018 yeah no 2019 sorry january 2019 um and then I've been here since. That's crazy. And it was, yeah, I moved out to San Francisco a couple months later. And uh, then Presh moved out. And then we were in the office together for like a year, uh, just boysing out with is everybody. It, like how different it is, is it, excuse me, working in office with our team versus remote? Because like we're fully remote right now for those of people who don't know. Uh, Justin, Nick, and I are all out of New York, which actually works well. We wake up before, obviously, Jason and Malling. We can write the news and stuff. Presh is out, um, over in the Bay Area. What do you, what, what like differences do you guys see the most? As a media organization, uh, we operate much, much more efficiently remote, um, candidly. Being able to have people on different coasts waking up at different times, um, and, and sort of making the best content that they can in their own um for you know in the way that they're most efficient doing it right because mm -hmm. not everyone is most efficient moving out and <clears throat> it also just it lets us hire way more talented people and have just this way broader range um on the investment side i can't i can't really speak to it too, too much but i know at least like you know if if we were restricted to hiring only in san francisco uh you're not getting Charlie Cuddy, right? Who is the director of education who Phenomenal. lives in Nebraska with his family. He's unbelievable. And there's no chance we hire him if we were only in San Francisco. I mean, I'm, I couldn't say no chance, but I don't think that he would have moved to uh, San Francisco from, you know, his nice, um, oh, yeah. comfortable house in Nebraska with his family. I don't think that he would yeah. uproot his family to do that. So, um, yeah, as, as a media organization, it's, it's, it's more efficient remote for sure. Is it any, we, actually, yeah, like Presh. So I guess your role has changed a lot now since you were working because you went from marketing to chief of staff. That's kind of a big jump, which is really cool. Has your job changed a lot since you guys, um, since everybody, I guess, left SF? Because it seems like a lot of people aren't based in SF anymore. And whereas like the whole team was like, you're probably, your life's probably changed like dramatically. Um, yeah, as soon as it was basically, as soon as I got to SF and then, you know, we had a couple months in office. And then pandemic and then everyone went remote and then a lot of people left SF. And you're like, wait a minute. Um, yeah. And <laughs> Why then didn't you like and move back to Toronto though? Why did you stay in SF? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I just liked, I just honestly liked 
um, SF and the outdoors and that part of it. Um, mm-hmm. But it honestly, at this point, didn't didn't really matter. Um, well, I guess I guess now as 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 a as chief of staff, it makes more sense that I'm kind of where Jason is. But um, prior, really, didn't I could have you know done whatever I was doing remotely, anyways. And most of my time at launch was technically remote because I started off remote, and then our Toronto team was still remote. Yeah. Um, and then so I only really had like in person um, with the team end of like 2019 mm-hmm. um but i would say same thing to just you know mimic what nick said um just what like feels way more efficient um in the office i would you know i mean, nick too would, would just like stay super late um nick either was like editing or you know doing producing or whatever it was on on the twist and media side um and i would just stay late just like either had meetings during the day um, and then just actually getting work done after hours. Um, so most of the day would just be, like be at the office, um, mm-hmm. versus now it's just like way more flexible, obviously. Um, with, you know, working from home, you can go to a coffee shop if you want, or go for a run or, you know, do, do anything like split your day. However or you do like. your Peloton or do your Peloton like Justin. Yeah. yeah. Justin, jo- Justin, you've joined a couple of meetings like on the Peloton, I swear. Or, a or, couple, or a couple. I've, I've switched to writing the morning ticker on yeah. the, this on the is, Peloton, which is psychotic. That's you can get like a, a laptop mount, which oh is actually God. pretty good because I'm doing like lower intensity training. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't. You can't really do that in the office it's unless you have like instead of hit training. <laughs> I like exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Our schedule is a little bit different. We're not going to... I try to do coffee shops like in the morning during the day, but I feel like when we're on recordings, I have to have like 5 million screens. Like my like 5 bajillion tabs open. Um, so I, I feel like we're, we're probably a little bit more strapped down to the the location of like our homes and wherever our big monitors are. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, just to give a... a tie the story together and where Justin comes into all this... Um, I started working and we were at, I think two days a week and it very occasionally we do it episode with a week with three shows. Um, and it was just interviews at that point, right? It was just founder interviews. We, we would re- occasionally do a news round table like once every two weeks or once every month. And then Jason wanted to ramp up to three and then we ramped up to four. And then eventually, I think right around when we were at four days a week, I was like, we need to bring on another producer. Um, which is what Justin. When we brought Justin on, uh, and that was what twenty, the end of twenty twenty, middle. Oh uh, yeah, actually started started twenty twenty one early. I think oh, the, early, the okay, job posting go. probably went out on January thirtieth or so. Mm-hmm. And yeah, at that time it was like three to four days most days. I think even when I joined, it was three to four, but then that quickly got sold out, and the ramp happened pretty quick. I yeah. think after I joined. Yeah, that's uh, to, six to days consistent a week. four and then consistent five and then consistent six. And that's what led to hiring Rachel. Yeah. And uh, trying to, you know, all of this stuff that gets done on This Week in Startups is in, we're trying to build a media organization or a very lean, very efficient media organization from the ground up and kind of figure out what processes work best and which don't as we go. And the way that we've done it is, We've scaled revenue and we've scaled output before we've scaled team. 
So a lot of ways that this works is, you know, um, a, an organization will create itself, they'll raise money, then they'll deploy that money by hiring people and then they'll scale up content. But the problem with that is there's not always the demand for the content, right? Like the athletic, for example, which is a paid subscription for sports. Um, they just, I think had a massive, I don't know if they had layoffs or, uh, as part of their SPAC presentation, it came out that they're or like losing a lot of customers or whatever, but um, it's not going great over there. I don't, I don't think uh, we did it the exact opposite way. We scaled up everything, made sure that there was demand. We sell out shows fast. We sell out shows first, and then on the back end, we we figure out how to make sure that everything's make awesome and then we can do everything. Yeah. So we're operating almost uh, the exact opposite way that uh, an organization that would raise money first would work, um, and it would hire people first. Okay. How do you guys feel about that? Um, that workload, like doubling down and increasing before, um, you have like almost enough man. Obviously, like we have enough manpower because we can make it work, but I think it's made very evident on the call that the time, like everyone's using their time, like very, very wisely on this team because like you have to. And even then you're working kind of late. Um, and then once it gets to a point where like you hit your breaking point, then you hire another person. How do you feel about that as a culture? Before you hit your breaking point. (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully. I know the, uh, the base camp folks, uh, Jason Freed and DHH in their book, yep. they, they, yeah. like, they say don't hire until it hurts, which oh, is, okay. is a pretty similar philosophy. I mean, they're, they're all about like bootstrapping. I mean, not, but yeah, just kind of they decry the VC model, which I think it makes a lot of sense for media businesses. Totally. There's some things where, where sprinting ahead definitely makes sense. But, uh, I, I mean, at times it, Sure, it'd be it'd be fun to have loads of extra resources to just d- deploy at will. I think Presh was talking about how fun it is to plan the all-in conference when you're just uh, you you have a, a lot of resources. Yeah, um, and I think we still give our our partners a, a great deal, and some of them have been with us for a long time, which is awesome. Uh, but I, it's definitely shown if if you're interested in just like any entrepreneurship, not just startups, it, it's been a really good lesson on on how to actually survive because there's other companies totally out there agree. that are our peers and some of them that are doing some awesome things like on deck, but they just had a lot of layoffs Rip. and I, I really don't, the only way you're getting laid off at launch is, um, is if like you, you personally are having difficulty getting the work done, I think yeah. G- given at least the the health of the business. So it, it, it depends on what type of company you want to work in. Uh, but it's, it's yeah. been really good to, to learn how to, how to run effectively. And there are definitely trade-offs you make, but, um, it's been really cool to watch and learn. I totally agree. I feel like learning to do like a bunch of different stuff too. Um, like having a lot on your plate and having to learn it all at the same time has taught me like not only at like things that are basic, like this is my first job out of college. So it's taught me to do things like time management, but it's also taught me how like to be like a, a way more effective worker. I think like in previous roles, even at like internships and things like that, like I, I had a lot of wasted time. And by being able to have like a bunch, it's a, it's a daily show. Like you have to get all this stuff done like that day. It's not like it can wait till tomorrow. And having that kind of like deadline imposed upon you, I feel like has made me like 10 times better of a worker overall. Yeah. Jason describes it as, um, or he likes to describe it as, you know, working here as a young person, will his goal is to increase your uh 
trajectory of your career, like skip 10 or 20 years. Mm -hmm. That's what he wants to do. And I think that we've done a good job kind of curating, working, um, I'm sure on the investment side as well, but on twist specifically, um, I mean, you're given agency almost immediately. Like Rachel, I think for you, it was almost like week two, you got that, uh, meetups project. Um, and again, you know, you say first job out of college or, um, yeah, we, we really, really try and <laughs> I almost want there to be no bureaucracy in this job for, for anyone that works on this weekend startups, because I've worked places before where there's a ton of bureaucracy and like awesome, really cool, interesting things get stifled and then have to go through this, um, processing machine where when they come out the other side, it's this just like totally mid, like, eh kind of thing for what yeah. it used to be at the ideation stage. Right. So, um, I think twist works best when there's a little bit of like, uh, creative chaos and it's just like, is something interesting? Yes. Boom. Go run with it. Do it. Um, which I think is that the, is the stage that we're at now. And I think for young people working in that kind of environment, which I'm sure exists on the investment side too, but I can't speak to it as well. Um, it's different than a lot of first jo job or second or third job out of colleges would be. And we like it that way. <laughs> yeah. Jason does a really good job at hiring a bunch of young people. I think it could help people grow within the company as well. Like Prash, you have been here for quite a bit. Um, so it's really cool to see everybody is like path throughout the company. Justin, I guess we skipped over you completely though. With how did you find the job? You didn't find it through like cold emailing Jason, did you? Uh, I replied to a tweet. That That's what I did too. The, the impetus. I was an occasional This Week in Startups listener, probably listened to a lot of the great episodes, uh, maybe four to 10 a year for since 2018. And then I was listened to basically every all in. And then Jason had uh, tweeted about it at the time. I, I honestly thought he was looking for somebody to help out in a part-time capacity. I wasn't really <laughs> um, fully aware of the ambition of the the podcast to scale to more days a week because I think at that time I was still like, oh, they do two interviews a week. Maybe they just need help booking guests or something like that. Um, I'd love to do that on the side. Yeah. I was working a consulting job at the time and uh, once I started down the process, I, I realized that it was definitely not part-time <laughs> and it was definitely full-time. So, uh, oh I gosh. kind of viewed it as, as going to business school of sorts because just the, the breadth and of the companies we cover, then the types of content, like we, we did series in the last year, scaling your startup and, uh, startup legal basics. Um, and some of those other ones that are very on the educational side. Uh, the the VC element, so that that's why I ended up um, joining up. But yeah, I'm just following Jason from the the podcast over the years. That's awesome. I I also found the job through a tweet, but somebody else mentioned to me. Obviously, like I knew who, who Jason was and like what this weekend startups was. Again, also wasn't like a daily listener. Like our our beloved Nodi gang, shout out you guys. Um. <laughs> And since you've been on, we haven't even mentioned Molly Wood joined our team. She's the newest of the hosts, aka the only other host, um, with Jason. And it's definitely made our, it, 
for my role with producing, I feel like I do most of the stuff with Molly, which is really, really fun getting to work with her podcast hall of famer, Molly Wood. Um, it's really, really cool seeing her and Jason's discussion, especially as of recent, like, how do you guys feel about producing a show now having two hosts? I think it's made life easier in my opinion. Yeah. For Molly, I mean, she's been incredible to, after joining just for, and if, if people are using as this as like a little peek inside the curtain, um, before Molly got here, we have zero, no, not Justin, not me, not Jason have any history in like actual real, uh, like podcast media, yeah. <laughs> nothing, zero. We're just like, I think that this is how you do things. Making it up um, as we go. Yeah, exactly. And we're like, yeah, this works. seems like it working. So whatever. Um, but and I mean that in terms of like actual output and then also like your, our input, like for, for staffing and hiring and what, how we should be allocating our time here, here and here. And when Molly came on board, I mean, it was just like immediately she's like, okay, here are like, um, three things that are really easy that we can do. And by the way, she wasn't like, you guys are doing everything wrong. It was like, she, she came in and, and she was, I think I was like, can please help us? Like, what are, is this right? And she was like, yeah, this is, you guys are doing great, but like this thing, this thing, this thing. Um, and one of the things specifically that she said to do was each host should have their own producer. So Rachel essentially became Molly's producer. Now Rachel does everything for this week in climate startups. She does all the booking 100%. Um, where if I didn't know that I might have just done that or one of the three of us might have just done it as they came in. But now that Rachel's dedicated to it, you're almost getting like a masterclass every day from Molly on, I, I would assume how to be a better interviewer and, and host, um, how to do everything on the back end and then everything else in between. Is yeah. that fair? Oh, totally. And I definitely think it's so interesting working under Jason first and then getting to work under, I work under both of them. I mean, but, um, specifically getting going from like having the just Jason as the host to then helping Molly out with that, like that climate segment. It is so interesting seeing how differently they operate in the podcasting space. Like how Jason really is like, you can tell Jason's like a business guy and Molly Wood is like a podcasting pro. Not that Jason isn't like a phenomenal podcaster. Obviously he wouldn't like the numbers wouldn't be so good if he wasn't phenomenal at this. And not that Molly isn't like absolutely not like Molly wasn't like doing stuff with market watch forever, but you totally see where they shine different differently like for example when we write for jason it totally differs for when i write for molly jason like we have a we're going deep in with the uh deep in with the facts there's like math right now here we're we're doing we're doing behind the envelope math um it's like pretty intense an intense note scene uh for like from 11 to to what is that like 11 to 1 every day we're out we're writing pretty deep whereas molly it's like bullet points a lot lighter i feel like she wants to like interject with her own opinion without me like kind of putting my own voice in it as much as possible which is really really cool yeah um justin i'm I'm curious what how you think the uh the dynamic has gone so far yeah pressure and i had actually went on a run back in december when when we happened to be in the same place like our our second meetup ever and on there, I joked about joining Twist at like a Series B, which is kind of ridiculous because yeah. Twist is um, <laughs> like a very small company, but and it's been profitable basically the whole time. So it's it's not really a startup. But I think that comparison is 
kind of right because I joined after the business model or like product market fit had kind of been established, looking to add some additional streams and and new elements to the show. Like we still do at least two interviews a week, but now we're adding much more content for a daily listener. And uh, one thing that you definitely see a lot of series B companies start to do, which we just did is you hire like experienced execs, like the startup team originally might just be a bunch of scrappy uh, young people or, or people who are like the disruptors. But there, there's definitely always something you can learn from the traditional incumbent industries. That's why you see like uh, uh, an Uber, like maybe poach like uh, Amazon and Amazon people to Costco people, etc. And Molly really comes in and brings that professional background uh, from radio um, and just helps us add more structure to this because uh, I think it is w- when you're a small team, especially when you're a small team with a, a lot of um, trust, maybe from working in the same place, uh, you can get kind of lazy about what, how you actually systematize things and which is great for experimentation. But as you try to add more people to mitigate problems, it definitely gets pretty chaotic if you don't have the right structure in place. So I think that that's been, it's been great to start to add structure and and more dedicated responsibilities. So people can actually, we can make sure we're making the most of our team. And um, instead of like duplicating work or um, just working on things that, that actually aren't going to push the show forward. So uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I agree. That's awesome. What are your guys? So what do you guys hope? to when you got this job were you like ever thinking like oh this is like going to help me um like i want to go over to the investment side i want to go work at a startup like what was your guys's like main goal i guess of taking this job or were you guys mostly just focused like on the here and now living in the present press you can go because you've been you've been on mute for a bit um yeah main the really like so when i first wanted the role it was like do whatever um just to make an opportunity because i knew i wasn't going back to school so Mm-hmm. Whatever that was, I was like down for. Um, and then after, you know, working a year, it was more so like, um, like I guess I started thinking about more career wise what I wanted. Yeah. Um, and I guess I like discovered, well, the one thing that's great about launch is like, it's like a Silicon Valley boot camp. Um, so you'll, and this was like one of the things Troy, who was um, the marketing guy that had had quit at the time which is how I got the role. Um, he had told me, um, cause we had like a week or two together onboarding. Um, he was like, it's like one of the best places to, um, just get, you know, get your hands, get basically get in the trenches and, and learn the world of Silicon Valley, uh, and startups. And so that was super exciting to me. Um, and with that, obviously you get that experience, you know, on day one, essentially working with Jason, um, but I would say like the thing that most excited me um, was just having a breadth of um, education in those in this world of startups. Um, and I was like fortunate enough to get that with the different roles that I've had over the years. And everyone at launch really gets that like everyone has some involvement in each part of the business because um, they all overlap one way or another. Um, so I think that's cool. And then the other thing which is cool which is how Jason like started his career as well, which was like doing everything part of the business. Um, and so he, he had mentioned like, you know, he would, he, you know, learned how to take photos and stuff for like the magazine when he was producing um, Silicon Alley Reporter. 
and just basically added a whole bunch of skills throughout that process of building that business. And I feel like he's giving that opportunity for all of us um, just to keep adding new skills, um, getting to like 70%. We don't have to be perfect. Um, like it was mentioned, you know, we can still hire experts, but um, everyone on our team is like super scrappy and can get to like 70, 80%, whatever the role is, um, which I think is, is awesome. And um, something that I just want to keep, you know, going on for the rest of my career. Um, but yeah, nothing too specific, like still like it being broad, still like being scrappy. Um, more of like a generalist type role is yeah. for me what I like. Um, yeah. That's awesome. I, it's funny because Justin literally said like this is like basically in place of business school. So the education thing, I think roles. I, I was definitely, um, I actually just talked to Mike Savino with our 2021 like year in, in a review because I am 100% on that same path where it's like I just want to learn as much as freaking possible and like who better to learn from at the time of getting the job. Um, it's like who's who's better to learn from than, than Jason besides now Molly Wood. It's like if I if you want to do something in media, if you want to do something in business, like really like these are the subject matter experts, which is like an incredibly cool experience. But I'm still on the on like when I was coming into this role, I was like, I don't know if I want to do stuff in investing. I don't know if I want to do stuff in startups, like go work at a startup, or I don't know if I want to try to like pursue podcasting myself. Cause at the time I did have like my own podcast, which is since like kind of like taken the back burner. But um really, really cool to be kind of like an inch deep and a mile wide at an organization that I feel like has so many different arms to it. And the, one of the best things about being at like a small organizations with so much going on is like you can Nick kind of like hinted at this, like the amount of responsibility that's like given to you is insane. Like the other day, Jason was like, yeah, you should probably like tweet more from the twist account. And I was like, okay, like, let's go. Like, okay, <laughs> I can do it. Like, we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, or it's like planned meetups. And it's like, I've never even planned like a sorority event before, much less like a gathering in Japan with people I do not know in a Slack group that I just joined at a company that I'm very, very like unknowledgeable in. And the, the amount of like responsibility that's given to you at a fairly quick pace is more than I think what a, a business degree could give you. Plus getting to learn like all the vocabulary like during the show and hearing Jason and Mike and Molly and all the awesome people on the investment side like talk about um, the actual process in which like that goes is, you know, gives you some like practical knowledge. You want to wrap it up, Nick? I think it's a good time to wrap it up. We're at um, Yeah. The original question was like, what uh, do you want to get uh, out of this? Yeah. Or what were you, what were you thinking that you wanted to like learn? Like, why did you take the job in terms of like, did you have like, were you interested in like making it over to the investment side? Or were you interested in like becoming like the best producer possible? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I uh, I didn't really think about that when I joined. I just I wanted to. Uh, it sounds super shallow, but this industry pays a little bit better than the industry that I was in. Yeah, and uh, I like money, so <laughs> that's why I uh, originally took the job. And I was like, all right, if I don't like this stuff, I could always go back to sports. But I have found the challenge of learning and and becoming or trying to become an expert on things that you know nothing about before coming or very little about before coming here. Uh, I found it really fun and uh, it's rewarding. Um, it's uh, th- there are times where you know you, you have to do something you've never done before, like go through an S one um, or a quarterly earnings report and break everything down. Uh, into a really simple, understandable, easily readable way that makes Jason or Molly look super smart when they say it. 
Um, and if it's your first time doing that, you get graded like it's your 50th time doing that. Yeah. And that makes you elevate your game um, quickly. And that goes for a bunch of different things all across the organization. That's the kind of place that it is to work. And I found that to be something that I, even though it could be hard in the moment, when you kind of look back on it and you're like, wow, I can't believe I've done all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. That's true too. Um, in terms of like, I always say this and I like, well, this is probably beating a dead horse. Cause I'm sure I've said this on like other okay boomer episodes, but like, I think such a strong indicator of somebody being super intelligent or at least knowing what they do at a really deep level is like the ability to explain things in the simplest way possible. And by yes. sitting down and having to write things, um, every single day, not only is it like forcing us to understand what's happening in the tech community, like we don't have a choice but to know what's happening happening in the tech community, in the market, um, in the world of you know Silicon Valley. But we have to be able to explain it in a way that like a fifth grader could understand it. Because when you're writing show notes, like these aren't something that like this isn't like a teleprompter out here that somebody's necessarily reading word for word all the time. This is something that they're kind of like glancing out, reading, you know, creating like their own opinions on on the fly. It's not like we're we're out here like writing Jason's opinion and Molly's opinion. You know, they are obviously really smart people. So being able to write things in completely again like a way that isn't going to sway them one way or the other, so it's understood by like a mass amount of people, is I think in turn like definitely making me smarter and understand what is happening a lot better. And I think if you can't explain it in the simplest terms, like if you can't explain something to an eight-year-old, then you shouldn't really be writing notes Mm -hmm. for people to pontificate about it to a really intelligent audience. And that's the standard that we hold ourselves to. Um, That being said, I do think that Jason and Molly, when when we have a topic um, that is like, not only do we not understand it, like experts are like, I don't really know what's going on here. Jason and Molly will say, listen, we don't really understand this. We're trying to figure it out in real time. Here's what we know. Here are the facts. Um, here's what we think. And then, you know, if you have any comments, like Jason always says, Hey, uh, tweet at us. If you know better than us, please let us know. Um, and then we'll kind of incorporate that into mm-hmm. our knowledge going forward. Yeah. If and it's was- a reputable source, um, which I, I think is a, is a good point. I totally agree. And it's nice having like two, it's nice seeing them like work out things together, like understand things together and like fill out the pieces. That's probably one of the big benefits about having two hosts now. But uh, yeah, thank you guys so much for joining. I know this is probably like a really interesting episode for most people. Um, Didn't have on a Gen Z founder on this time, but I thought it would be cool for you guys to see behind the scenes a little bit, especially with the All In Summit happening this week and with our retreat happening this week. Again, getting to meet Presh for a second time. Going to be pretty wild pumped awesome so where can everybody find you guys on the internet besides at producers or besides producers at this weekend startups.com you don't want to fo- you don't want to follow me. you don't want to follow and don't want to follow nick no, nick is I'm an anon wildly uninteresting yeah nick okay, is- I, i'll plug mine i guess justin p fortier f-o-r-t-i-e-r um, nice yeah. twitter very cool uh, very cool you can find that on on all platforms cool and then press linkedin you gonna, twitter like- whatever are you going to drop your like YouTube channel as well? Nice. Um, I don't, yeah, I just, you can search my name, Presh on YouTube. If you wanted to watch the vlog. Yeah, exactly. Watch that whole woe <laughs> series whole actually. Vlog. But seriously, I, I hope if you've made it this far on the podcast and this is kind of a long rambling one, you clearly like the show and you're clearly interested in uh, launch and this week in startups and all the stuff we're putting out 
and it's definitely growing mm-hmm. slowly uh, or in a, in a sustainable manner. We, we've really, I think, probably two x the entire audience size since I've been here, which is kind of crazy to think about since it's, <laughs> since it's big. But I, the the team is growing. So if if you're really passionate about startups and tech news and um, have made it this far, you should um, keep in touch. Make sure to follow Jason. Uh, follow the, our our LinkedIn postings. Um, from both launch and I think launch is typically where we post them on LinkedIn. And, uh, yeah, I, I would plug that intensely because he definitely is always looking to, to help mentor great people. Yeah. And, uh, as long as you, uh, have a will to work, this yeah, is we're a trying great to fix place our, for you. Trying to fix our bedtimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm no, we'll find new things to do. I'm kidding. <laughs> Bedtimes is a moving target, actually. <laughs> so, awesome. Thank you guys so much for coming on. This is a really cool segment of OK Boomer. Maybe I'll get to talk to you guys like one-on-one in different episodes and dive deeper even into uh, some of your guys' stories and excited to see where everybody goes. Thanks, Thanks Rachel. Rachel. All right, bye, guys. See ya. <laughs>